Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the seventh program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about taxation without representation. Should the District of Columbia be a state? This month, we'll talk about statehood for the District of Columbia, what rights of self-determination do DC residents now enjoy? How are their rights now constrained? What are the obstacles to DC statehood? What is the history? What is the racial just, justice aspect to this issue? And against all of this backdrop and Maine's own struggle for statehood in the Missouri Compromise, why is this important to Maine people? Why should they care? This show was pre-recorded on July 13th. Uh, so we're not taking any questions live. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put democracy forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host today for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Ann Anderson is the chair of the League of Women Voters DC Full Statehood Rights Committee and herself a resident of DC, correct, Ann? Welcome. That's right. Thank you for joining us. And Chris Myers-Ash is the visiting instructor of history at Colby College. He co-authored the book, Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital. Welcome, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. And how is DC go governed today? I know we could take the whole hour on this, but you know. <laughs> yes, we, we could take the whole hour, but let me see if I can condense it. First of all, everything in DC, is uh, under the control of Congress. We work at the local level with the blessing of Congress. Uh, so we do have a mayor we can vote for, and we have um, a council that we elect, and we have uh, advisory neighborhood commissioners that make it even closer to this people. Uh, we also have a non-voting delegate to Congress that we vote for. So all of these people actually function as if we were a state. The mayor, you know, puts a budget together, the council passes legislation, the mayor signs legislation, and then everything that we do in the local level goes to Congress. And it has to be okayed by Congress. Um, right now, the way it works is if they don't object, after a certain period of time, then it goes into law. The piece that I think is really important to remember is that all of this happens because Congress has allowed it and Congress can take it away any time. So we laugh about this John Oliver joke who, you know, he joked that the mayor of DC gets to run the city the same way that the student council president gets to run her school. Um, Chris, you know, did you cover this in your book? I mean, the Congress meddles, right? Congress does meddle. 
uh, whenever it sees fit. And sometimes that works to the, the benefit of uh, racial justice in DC. Uh, you know, it's just a topic you wanted to address uh, as it did during reconstruction when federal leaders basically made DC what they called an example for all the land in terms of, of racial integration and, and um, desegregation. Uh, but generally it works to the disadvantage of DC residents uh, because federal leaders often meddle on, on issues that they uh, that are near and dear to them and their constituents back home, but they do it over the objections of DC residents. Uh, this has happened repeatedly over the course of the last 200 years uh, of DC history. Let me just say that, you know, just write this like in on the 7th of July, our non-voting delegate had to thank the Democrats in Congress for defeating the amendment prohibiting DC from spending local funds on abortion. And she also had to thank Democrats for defeating the amendment, repealing DC gun violence prevention laws and prohibiting DC from re regulating guns in the future. All the time they are putting in little things that we have to watch for. Just what, we, what we find is that federal leaders often see DC as a little laboratory where they can, they can tinker and experiment with ideas that they would like to, to take nationwide. Um, but they'll do it on D.C. first because they have complete control in D.C. and they don't have to worry about, you know, democratic meddling uh, there. So, I mean, that makes me think that some of the issues where they are more likely to interfere are the most hot button issues, the most politically charged issues, you know, LGBT issues, you know, COVID, um, abortion, you mentioned. And I mean, is, am I right about that? Oh, absolutely. When you talk about COVID, one of the things they did to make a political point, nothing else, was during the time when they were uh, putting out the COVID relief bill, they shorted DC by $775 million. And oh, by the way, we have more people than Wyoming or Vermont. So, you know, to have fewer monies because they decided we were, quote, a territory at that point, uh, when they usually treat DC as if it were a state more than 500 times in any session of Congress. You know, we, we had to fight to make it whole again, which we did, but you know, this is how it works all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So DC pays federal, or DC residents pay federal income tax? Oh yes. The they highest per capita in the country. And in fact, not just per capita, but they pay more just in terms of sheer dollars than more than 20 different states. Really? Good golly. And they they have a representative in Congress, but that representative does not have full power. Delegate in Congress. And there's a, a, a shadow senator. I mean, the titles themselves are, are worthy of mockery. Um, but yes, so they, they have people who are on Capitol Hill from D.C. representing D.C., but they have no actual power. They can't vote. Right. Well, the non-voting delegate, who is Eleanor Holmes Norton, actually, when the Democrats are in charge in the Congress, are she's offered courtesies, like she can vote on in the Committee of the Whole, or she can, you know, the, but she can never vote on the final pass On the floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what is this, Chris, about the... Um, shadow senator? 
I didn't get that. So shadow senator is a is a role that was developed in the 1990s, uh, basically playing this a similar kind of role, but even le with with less uh, power even than the non-voting delegate in Congress. It's, it's just someone who goes to the Senate and is there, but can't actually vote uh, and and do anything important. They do get yeah. presidential elections, right, Ann? Well, so you know, I moved to D.C. in 1964, and that was the first year that DC residents were able to vote for president for the first time since 1801 when it was established. And up till then, there hadn't been any votes on anything. So in 1964, they were, because of the 23rd Amendment, they were given the opportunity, the, the quote right, to um, vote for president. And we now have three electoral votes in the electoral college. Which would be the same as a small state like Vermont, right? Exactly. And Chris, tell us about the 23rd Amendment. Like, how, how did that come to be and how does it work? Mm -hmm. So the 23rd Amendment basically grants DC uh, residents the, the right to vote in presidential elections. Mind you, as Anne said, this was passed in the early 1960s. 1964 was the first presidential election in which it took effect. Um, and at that time, DC didn't even have a mayor or city council or, or anything else. It was run by presidentially appointed commissioners. Um, and it had been that way since Reconstruction. And this was partly uh, due to Cold War politics, right? The Soviet Union would make hay of the fact that here's the leader of the free world and the residents of its own capital uh, can't even vote, right, for anything. And so uh, there, there was momentum, bipartisan momentum, uh, primarily driven by Republicans at th that time in the 1950s. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower supported uh, empowering DC residents and providing national representation. And uh, so a lot of that, that energy was channeled into a constitutional amendment to, to provide uh, at least representation in the presidential elections. It did not extend to representation in Congress or even home rule at, at, at that point. That would come later. It, it was embarrassing then, as it is still embarrassing now, uh, that residents of the nation's capital in, in you know, the world's oldest democracy are not even granted the, the basic unit of currency in, uh, in a democracy. And so national leaders were highly attuned to uh, to Charges of his hypocrisy coming from the Soviet Union. We're trying to win over countries in the so-called third world. We so there was there was momentum to try to to rectify that um, in in the early 1960s. This was probably before when you moved moved to D.C. But we had this quote on our website from Strom Thurmond, who, of all people, was supporting D.C. statehood at that time as a matter of fairness. Is it your impression that the electoral politics were different in D.C.? during the period when the 23rd Amendment was proposed and passed? I don't think so. They, I mean, at that point, it was really the civil rights era. And so people in DC were civil rights leaders. And in fact, the first set of people who were actually elected in uh, DC in the 70s, uh, when we actually got home rule finally, were all civil rights leaders because you know, bottom line, this is a civil rights, human rights issue. And so there we go. 
the Strom Thurmond quote, so Strom Thurmond famously says, you know, human rights begins at home, we need to support. Uh, he, he was in speaking in favor of what he, what was the DC Voting Rights Amendment. This was in the mid 1970s. So this is, this is actually later. 10 years later, but it's a whole world different, right? The, the world changed dramatically in those, those 10 years, particularly in terms of politics. And so what happens is, as Anne refers to is the, the civil rights struggle after Selma, after the Voting Rights Act is passed, the Civil Rights Act is passed, many civil rights activists looked around the country and said, well, where, where do we turn left next? Martin Luther King himself visited DC and he considered DC as, as his next big project. And he ultimately chose to go to Chicago and work on, on slums and poverty in Chicago. Uh, but, but many civil rights activists, including Marion Barry of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and many others involved in SNCC came to DC because here was this glaring uh, contradiction and they fought for and won home rule. And uh, they won the, the non-voting delegate in Congress. They won an elected school board. So many, uh, many victories for small D democracy in DC in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And there was a guy named Walter Fauntroy who, who became the first non-voting delegate. And Walter Fauntroy was a political genius. And he helped orchestrate in 1972, the defeat of the segregationist chairman of the House District Committee, uh, Representative McMillan. And Representative McMillan was famous for opposing any expansion of DC voting rights. And Walter Fauntroy said, look, now that we have the Voting Rights Act, there are tens of thousands of newly enfranchised black voters in Representative McMillan's district. We're going to organize those folks and we are going to defeat him. And that's exactly what they did in 1972. Caravans of, of organizers from DC went down. Fauntroy himself went down, worked with Jesse Jackson from South Carolina to organize black voters uh, in McMillan's district and get them to turn out and vote. And they ended up voting for a moderate Republican candidate who then joined white Republican candidate who then joined the Congressional Black Caucus uh, because he knew that his political victory was uh, because of these black voters who'd been turned out to vote. So Walter Fontenoy then goes and said, and mind you, the House District Committee then falls into the hands of a black Democrat named Charles Diggs from Michigan who supports home rule and home rule is then passed the very next year. Walter Fontenoy then looks around and says, what else can we do? Well, look who's coming up for reelection. Mr. Strom Thurmond, who's the senator from South Carolina and is himself battling for his political life after the civil rights movement and trying desperately as George Wallace did, right? George Wallace famously went, you know, groveling to back black leaders, apologizing profusely for what he'd done during the 60s because he wanted to save his political life. Strom Thurmond sees a long career ahead of him in politics, does not want to lose it. And he reads the writing on the wall. He says, oh, I don't want to tick off Walter Fontenoy. I don't want him coming down with those caravans of, uh, full of organizers organizing black voters in my district. Here's what I'll do. I will go out there and I will speak on behalf of the DC Voting Rights Act Amendment. Barry Goldwater speaks on behalf of the DC Voting Rights Act Amendment. This was not statehood. This was to grant DC all the rights of, of state, representation of a state in the Senate and the House. It was not officially statehood, but it was rep national representation. The 1970s was a different was a different era. Republicans really were trying to win over black votes in the post-civil rights era. 
that has changed dramatically in the last 40 years. Well, I want to talk about the racial justice aspect of this, but we're going to take a little station break first. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is taxation without representation. Should DC be a state? Our guests this afternoon are Chris Myers-Ash, co-author of the book, Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital, and Ann Anderson, Chair of the League of Women Voters, DC Full Rights Committee. This program was pre-recorded on July 13th. No listener calls are being taken at this time. I want to sort of talk about the history of how states get to be admitted to the union. And maybe we'll just start with the most basic question, how, how do we get new states like Alaska and Hawaii? And what's the so, mechanism? Um, basically, you, as a state, you, I'm a territory, you um, apply to be a state and Congress votes you in and the president signs it. Yeah. A majority vote, that's it. That's how 37 states uh, after the first 13 have been admitted. So, so Maine got to be a state as part of the Missouri Compromise, which explained the Missouri Compromise, Chris. Sure. So th this was the, the famous compromise. Uh, Jefferson famously called it, you know, an alarm bell in the night, we, you know, because slavery was the unreconciled tension uh, from the that, that was never reconciled in the Constitution. And as the, the new republic grows, slavery grows tremendously. And there's an obvious difference economically and, and then socially and politically between the, the Southern slave states and the Northern states, which slowly are em embracing uh, emancipation one by one. And so by 1820, it's clear that there, there's a crisis here. And what Congress does, it basically, it, it draws a line because Northern, Northern representatives are worried about the growing, what they call the slave power, capital S, capital P, that representatives from the South were, were disproportionately uh, empowered because of slavery, because of the Congress, because of the Constitution's three-fifths clause gave them three-fifths extra power. You know, a lot of people misunderstand that. They think, oh my gosh, slaves were counted as three-fifths of a, of a person. That's terrible. Actually, the Southerners, the slaveholders, wanted them to be counted fully because that enhanced their power because now, now all the, the, the population was being counted. But even so, though they couldn't vote, let's not forget that part. Vote at all, or we weren't, considered, weren't considered human beings in any, in any way. So Southern slaveholders had disproportionate power in the, in the new government. And so Northerners wanted to check the growth of slavery. And so they, they drew a line at, at, you know, right along uh, you know, the Northern border, uh, you know, the 36th parallel. And Missouri was, was the one state that already had slavery and it was above that parallel. So Congress said, okay, we'll allow Missouri to come in as a slave state, but in order to keep the balance, we're gonna create a new state somewhere in the North. And they said, oh, well, what about this chunk of Massachusetts that's kind of off on its own above New Hampshire? We'll just, we'll just lop that off of Massachusetts and call that a state, therefore. Maine became a state. And so that, that's one of the times uh, where there was, a, there was a balance, you know, where kind of a, a, a balance of admitting states. But that is the exception, not the rule. You know, in Alaska and Hawaii were also kind of balanced because Republicans, ironically, now wanted Hawaii and Democrats wanted Alaska. And, and so there was a balance. But by and large, states are admitted without any worries about partisan balance or anything like that. I mean, in the 
In the 35 years after the start of the Civil War, the Republican Party added 11 states, like all that, that the, the, those red states in the West, you know, Wyoming, Nebraska, Colorado, Montana, Idaho, all those were admitted in tremendous burst when the Republican Party had relatively unchecked power in the National Congress because uh, coming out of the Civil War, the Democrats had been disgraced by, by the Confederacy. And so Republicans largely dominated. I mean, West Virginia was just cut off from Virginia in the middle of the war uh, and, and, and granted statehood. Uh, Nevada was admitted in 1864 with 21,000 people. Uh, North Dakota and South Dakota were one territory, Dakota territory. If you look at all the 1900, uh, 19th century maps, all of them have Dakota as one territory. The Republicans in Congress said, nah, that's not good enough. Let's cut it in two. And so in 1889, they admitted two states, North Dakota and South Dakota, both of which were sparsely populated, but that gave them four senators instead of just two. Well, right? so, so this wasn't about race, but it was about partisan balance, right? They wanted more Republicans. It was about partisan power, not right. balance. Uh, and so the admission of states is always political. It's inherently political. It's always partisan. It's always yeah. ideological. Uh, often has has to do with with race, but not always. But it is a. It's about power and, and representation. Let me say something about that because one of the things that's going on right now is we're being we in Washington D.C. are being accused of a democratic power grab. You know, which is why. That's one of the things that people say. I was like, well, you know, you can't do that because indeed right now we would have two more Democratic senators. And so, you know, the, the question here really is, oh, you're not going to allow us uh, representation because of how we might vote. And let me get down in the weeds for just a second. You know, if you want to be at all involved in local politics in D.C., you need to belong to the Democratic Party, regardless of what your basic philosophical bent is. Uh, so, in fact, we have no idea how things might turn out when we become a state, because then people would have a chance to decide how they want to do it. But by the way, we have four parties who have ballot status in D.C., and all of us are disenfranchised. You know, it's really important to consider that in fact, it's, I will, I'm probably gonna sound like a broken record. This is a civil rights, this is a human rights, this is a racial justice, social justice issue. This is not a partisan issue. I mean, I know the Brennan Center says this is a racial justice issue. So expound on that a bit. Sure. So race is, a, is an undeniable uh, factor in, in D.C. politics and always has been going back to the founding of the city. It was founded as a, as a slave city in the South. It was placed in the South uh, in, in large part because uh, Southerners in Congress wanted to protect the institution of slavery. Uh, and so for it, its first 60 years of existence, uh, slavery was, was widely, uh, was widespread and, and highly visible. But during Reconstruction, because of the Civil War, because of emancipation, D.C. became this, this, uh, this crucible of, of interracial democracy. It was on the forefront of, of interracial democracy. Black men in the district were the first to vote, uh, grant, first to be granted the right to vote before uh, the 15th Amendment was ratified, uh, and vote they did, and they changed the 
shape of DC politics. At that time, there was a, a mayor and a, an elected city council and black men, black men ran one seats from, from every ward in the city. And it really was a, a flowering of interracial democracy unlike anything America or, or the world had really ever seen. In the 1870s, Congress stripped that away. Fearing about black political power, Congress strips that away, begins the retreat away from reconstruction and installs this unelected appointed three-man commissioner form of government that lasts for the next century. Now the fear of black political power is what undermines every effort because DC residents have been fighting ever since to, to get that the, those rights back. And every time they do, people will come and say, but wait a minute, remember reconstruction because people, white people said, look, the black voters, even though they weren't a majority at that time, black voters held the balance of power. The idea was that white people, white voters were split evenly between Democrats and Republicans roughly, and that black voter, voters then held the balance of power. So whomever they supported would win. Anytime people said, well, we need national representation, we need home rule. This happens in the 1890s with the labor movement. It happens during World War I when we're fighting abroad for you know, an award to save democracy. People back home are saying, look, we need democracy in the district. They said, no, if you give Washingtonians the ballot, black voters will control the city. By the 1950s, when, when DC becomes a black majority city, those crowds, cr cries ring loud, like, oh my gosh, if you give people the ballot, then it's gonna be all black people. Opponents of DC voting rights have, have coded their language. Now they talk about Democrats and, and, you know, and some are less coded than others. They'll say things like, oh, you know, Pat Buchanan used to say, this is affirmative action for, for DC, you know, to give DC uh, statehood or, or enhance voting, voting rights. Uh, but at the nub of it is this fear of black political power, this fear that that if D.C. residents are granted the right to vote, if they get representation in Congress, then black people in the city are going to wield what some people think is disproportionate or, or uh, in, inappropriate power. Yeah, this is another thing that people say is like, oh, my gosh, you're so close. You're going to be disproportionate. Well, excuse me, my my home is further away from the capital than the people who live across the, the river in Virginia. And they have two senators and they have congressmen. So no, and I mean, never mind that we now are talking about all kinds of things like we're, you know, we're doing this by Zoom, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I mean, and you know, I've heard somebody from Florida commenting on Florida's election laws said something like, these election laws are not um, motivated by racist attitudes. They're motivated by political attitudes, which have racial consequences. What do you, is that the way you see the DC thing? Like this is all about Republican power with raci racial consequences or, and do you think this is really his, and like going back to Woodrow Wilson, I mean, is this really a racist intent? Or what do you think? I think there is a definite racist intent and it's so confused and conflated with the partisan politics that are going on right now uh, that it's really difficult to sort out. The critical piece I think uh, is to understand that if you are going to prevent people from having representation because of how they might vote, or, 
what the color of their skin is. It's un-American. It's a civil, um, I'm, okay, I'll say it again, civil rights, <laughs> racial justice, human rights issue. And I keep talking about human rights because, you know, every, every human rights commission in the world has dinged the United States of America for how they treat their nation's capital. So, and they've called it a human rights issue mm -hmm. because we're not represented. And let me just say something else about, about home rule because I wanna give a shout out to the League of Women Voters, the National League of Women Voters. There were 1.2 million petitions sent in that were collected by the League of Women Voters to support home rule for the District of Columbia. So we helped make that happen. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to make sure that, that I got that in here this time. Good. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Ann Anderson, Chair of the League of Women Voters DC Full Rights, Rights Committee, and Chris Myers-Ash, Visiting Instructor of History at Colby College. Our topic today is taxation without representation. Should DC be a state? This show was pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. This could be done legislatively, right? I mean, it's just another law, Chris. Absolutely. Congress has the power uh, to so, and it's interesting because some of the objections to DC statehood and, and DC voting rights, people will point to the constitution and say, look, the constitution says that, that the federal government has exclusive uh, jurisdiction over its, the nation's capital. And, and they're, they're right. It does say that article one, section eight, that goes back to the, the founding era when, when founders, James Madison in particular, uh, Alexander Hamilton, they were worried that if they put the nation's seat of government in a particular state, then that state, whether it was Pennsylvania or New York, wherever it was, that state would have disproportionate and inappropriate power over the federal government. And so they wanted to create what was, what was called exclusive jurisdiction over their own capital. So they wrote that in. They said that, you know, the, the seat of government can't be more than 10 miles square. They, they drew it in uh, after the constitution was ratified, George Washington went out, they, they, he selected a site uh, right close to his home in Mount Vernon. Uh, and they, they went to the max, they went 10 miles square to the full max on both sides of the Potomac. That was the nation's capital. No other state, so Maryland and Virginia ceded the land, so no other state would have jurisdiction. And that was important so that, that the federal government could control its own capital and not rely on other states to protect it or anything else. The founders could never imagine that a president uh, would, would not exercise his duty to protect the nation's capital uh, were it to be under attack as it was on January 6th. But that's a whole nother story. But that, that was a real concern and the founders built it into the constitution. The problem was the other concern about no taxation without representation, which of course was the rallying car of the revolution. They didn't know how to reconcile those two. How do you have exclusive jurisdiction over the nation's capital and yet allow those capital residents to have full rights as American citizens? The founders never reconciled that. Now, Virginians, the, the, the folks on the, on the Virginia side of the Potomac, increasingly during the course of the early 19th century became more and more agitated about this. They felt like they were being ignored and neglected 
precisely because they didn't have full rights as citizens. And they petitioned and the, the, the Virginia uh, House of Delegates voted, Congress voted and said, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna retrocede. We're gonna give all that land back. They just did this legislatively, no constitutional amendment necessary. The constitution gives a maximum size, right? 10 by 10, 100 square miles. They just lopped the Virginia part off, gave it back to Virginia. And those district residents who happened to be on the Virginia side of the Potomac now became Virginians, now suddenly were enfranchised, now had the full rights of American citizens. That was done legislatively, right? Because the constitution specifies a maximum size, but not a minimum size. And so Congress could, without any amendment, could legislatively shrink the size of the federal district down to the, the roughly two miles square that encompasses the Capitol complex, uh, the White House, all the federal buildings, places where there are essentially no residents and leave the rest of the district, the other 66 square miles uh, that, that are home to more than 700,000 residents, including tens of thousands of military veterans, uh, allow them to, to actually take part and become full citizens of the United States. That can be done legislatively. It does not require a constitutional amendment. And I, I have heard one of Maine's U.S. senators say they prefer a solution similar to the lobbing off solution. Let's just give it back to Maryland. Why isn't that an answer to this problem? Yeah, that's called retrocession. That's the official name, giving it back to Maryland. There's a several problems with that. Uh, one is that if you care about people voting, then the DC residents voted in 2016 by 86% to apply for statehood. We have not said, oh, we'd like to go back to Maryland. We've said we'd like to be a state. And by the way, back in the 90s, when Maryland legislature was offered DC, they voted in a veto proof <laughs> vote. No, 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 we don't want them. Mm -hmm. And and by the way, every member except one, I think, um, of the current Maryland delegation to to Congress um, are all co-sponsors of the D.C. statehood bill. So D.C. doesn't want to go to Maryland and Maryland doesn't want him back. So elaborate on that. So think about this. Retrocession is 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 advocated almost exclusively by by people outside of the, the district area, often with no interest or stake in the, the issue at all, are just kind of spitballing out there. Oh, what a, as if nobody's ever talked about it. This has been an issue that has been soundly rejected repeatedly by every just about everybody involved in, in DC and in Maryland, as, as Ann said. So the prospect of retrocession would mean the federal government would have to ram this down the throats of unwilling citizens, both in DC and in uh, and in Maryland. And the thing I like to say in Maine is, you know, because remember, people say, oh, you know, just, just go back to Maryland. You used to be part of Maryland. What's the big deal? I said, well, okay, but that was 200 plus years ago. I think a, a better solution would be, why don't we just, why don't we just give Maine back to Massachusetts, right? Because you used to be part of Massachusetts, right? Mainers won't care. What, what difference does it make? Now you'll just vote for Mass you know, the Massachusetts senators. No big deal, right? Maine and Massachusetts, you, you're right next to each other. What Mainers would go 
crazy. They say, absolutely not. We don't want anything to do with that. We don't want a, a dilution of our voting rights. Like we have a whole separate identity here in Maine. We're not like Massachusetts. Our interests are different. DC residents feel the same way. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Longer than Maine's been separated from, from Massachusetts. Nobody in their right mind would ever say, hey, why don't we just merge Maine and Massachusetts again? Why not merge North and South Dakota that, as they used to be back in the, in the 1860s and 70s? Nobody says that because it's crazy. Nobody in those states wants that. And so retrocession has been soundly rejected. The people of DC have spoken loud and clear that DC is their preferred way of getting the full rights of American citizens. They have all the responsibilities. Now they would like the rights as well. Yeah. And let me just say that when you, you know, even the, the way that we have to talk about this, the, the title of this uh, presentation, you know, should DC be a state? Well, Part of what the opponents say is, oh, D.C. can't be a state because it's in the Constitution. Da, da, da. And what they don't pay attention to is the way the bill is defining. It shrinks, just like Chris said, it's shrinking the original federal district down to that two mile square, which Congress has already done once before. And so the, the bill takes care of this and makes it constitutional. So, Anne, what, what, let's say we did this, the, you know, the D.C. Admission Act, and it got shrunk down so that the only people living in the district were the first family, right? Now, would the first family get three presidential electors, or how would that work? Well, the 23rd Amendment, let me just be clear, the 23rd Amendment actually applies only to the federal district. So once we became a state, we would have nothing to do with the 23rd Amendment. So that's, there's nothing that stops us from becoming the 23rd or the 51st state right. from the 23rd Amendment. So when then you have this set of people, oh, by the way, there are no licensed uh, residential buildings in the federal district, uh, aside from, of course, the White House. And yes, those people would be there, except that it's up to Congress. I mean, part of what the 23rd Amendment says is that it's up to Congress to decide how the 23rd Amendment will be uh, administered or will, will be carried out. So it's up to Congress to, as to whether they'll let three people be have three electoral votes or not. And my bet is they won't. So. Chris, what do you think about that? What, what, like if the, if the DC admission act happened, mm -hmm. what would have to be tweaked in the 23rd amendment or otherwise to. Yeah. As Ann said, the, the new Congress would have to, to include either within that legislation or in, a, in other legislation, you know, a provision accounting for the only re re residents uh, of the federal district and just indicating that they, they would not have, you know, that, that those three electoral votes anymore. So that would be another legislative enactment. Yes. How come that's not in the admission act right there? It is. Oh, that they wouldn't have the electors that's in there. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, you can't put at the, you can't change an amendment to the constitution legislatively, but the piece that is in the 23rd amendment 
that says Congress shall be in charge because Congress had to be in charge of it because they have full control of the federal district. So it's up to Congress to decide how they're going to manage it. And that piece is legislative. I I just want to be clear for our listeners, and maybe I'm getting confused. The D.C. Admission Act does not include this bit about the White House having three electors, right? It doesn't no. include a remedy for that. That would have to be afterwards. It, it says that, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but um, what it does say is that the Congress, since Congress is in charge of the 23rd Amendment and how it is functioned, how it is administered, it will be made moot, basically, because there's nobody there other than these you know, two or three people. Uh-huh. Chris? Do that. Right. Section two of the amendment says that Congress has the power to enforce this, this article by appropriate legislation. And so it can just pass additional legislation to just say we're not going to enforce the, the, you know, just to create this, uh, you know, address this, this, uh, this issue legislatively. You know, this, this all sort of boils down to the fact that the impediment to getting the DC Admission Act passed is in the Senate. And it has to do with the fact that there would now be presumably two additional Democratic senators. And we can't get that passed, the Republican minority, which would require break, uh, you know, breaking the filibuster. Am I getting this right, Chris? Right. So it is it's because of Republican op- opposition uh, that that the DC residents don't have the right to vote. Now, what's interesting is that that was not historically the case. Republicans for a long time were the ones pushing for more DC empowerment. Uh, as I mentioned, up into the 50s, up into the 1970s even, there were Republicans who were actively courting urban black voters. Uh, you think of, of guys like Jack Kemp, uh, for example, who really pushed the GOP to, to uh, in the post-civil rights era to, to embrace Black conservatives and, you know, and try to cultivate a whole generation of, of uh, new Black Republicans, right? The, for a long time, the Republican Party was the party of racial equality. And the Democratic Party was the party of segregation and white supremacy. And with the civil rights era, that really kind of flipped. But there was, there was this period of transition where, where many Republicans said, look, We've got to build inroads in, in places like D.C. They ran viable candidates in the 1970s for, for local office in D.C. They sought to court black voters uh, and, and, and white progressive, you know, white voters in the, in the city uh, and, and try to build a Republican base. In the 1980s, that shifted. They, basically, Republican leadership decided, look, that's not where our future lies. We need to focus on our white rural base and, and, and building it out there. And we're going to attack, we're going to, we're going to build that base by attacking cities, by attacking uh, the voters who live in those cities, many of whom in, in DC, the majority of whom are, are African-American. And so now, yes, the reality is Republicans have little chance of, of, of winning those Senate seats uh, should deep sea become a state, but that's not a foregone conclusion, right? Things change over time. Republicans used to dominate Hawaii politics. Now they don't, right? Democrats used to be strong in Alaska. Now they're not so strong. Things change over time. So it's very myopic to think, oh, it's always going to be this way because 
if DC has more power, then there's more of an interest for the Republican Party to build up the party and, and to organize and, and to develop policies that appeal to, to urban voters, um, many of whom are, are Black. And if I can just say something about, I think it's really hard for people to imagine DC as a state, you know, because most mostly, I mean, eighth graders come and they don't come to my house, right? They, they, they look at the mall and that's, that's what they think of as DC. But the reality is that um, people will be able to do many more things. Like Chris said, it's like, oh, you know, right now we have a, we have a ceiling that we can't get over because there's nobody that we can uh, elevate to the Senate. There's nobody that we can elevate to the house. And we have, we are beholden. We are in a position of, can you please take care of us to the rest of the, to the senators and the congressmen? I mean, that's why Eleanor Holmes Norton had to thank people for helping to defeat because she didn't have a vote. But, you know, that's, you know, we're always looking over, over our shoulders about that. I think Anne makes a really wonderful point. I think a lot of what D.C. residents face is just misunderstandings about what D.C. is. I can't tell you how many times when I went off to college and I said, oh, I'm from D.C. And they'd be like, oh, from Maryland or Virginia. People mm-hmm. had no idea that they were actually American citizens who live in the city and have lived there for a long time. You'll hear people say things like, oh, well, nobody's really from D.C., my mom was born and raised in DC. <laughs> you know, I grew up in DC. There are hundreds of thousands of residents and they're like Mainers. Like native Washingtonians are very much like Mainers. There's still an association, an organization called the Association of the Oldest Inhabitants of the District of Columbia. It was started after the Civil War by native Washingtonians who were concerned about all these outsiders who were moving into DC and they wanted to say, no, well, we were the ones who were here first. Right. And you think about Mainers being so proud, like, you know, I go back how many generations in Maine, Washingtonians do the do the same thing. There are people with deep, deep roots in the city who love the city. Uh, and there's this idea that, oh, everybody's just a bureaucrat and it, it's all owned by the federal government. Twenty five percent of D.C. acreage is owned by the federal government. And you might say, well, that sounds like a lot. Eighty five percent of Nevada is owned by the federal government. More than 50 percent of Oregon, more than 50 percent of Utah, Idaho are owned by the federal government. Nobody says, let's take their rights away because it's all it's just an appendage of the federal government. No, our budget, the federal government accounts for less of our budget than five different states. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Ann Anderson, chair of the League of Women Voters DC Full Rights Committee, and Chris Myers-Ash, co-author of the book Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital. We're talking about DC statehood. This program was pre-recorded on July 13th. No listener calls are being taken. So um, the Senate, this is all about partisan power in the Senate, right? And um, how majoritarian is the Senate anyway? I mean, like you said, California gets two, South Dakota gets two. I mean, this is already kind of a problem, isn't it, Ann? If we had, if we actually had two senators, we would be an urban state. And that would be, that would go towards um, a little bit towards balancing things, because right now there's a huge majority of 
uh, rural power that is not um, not really paying attention to some of the things that urban people, people who live in in big places of cities around around the whole country, which is are. the more majority of our people, right, Chris? It is, and and Anne makes a really good point. I mean, this this is you know it's it's partially about race, it's it's a lot about power, but it's also about a rural rural urban uh, power imbalance. Uh, the Senate was intended to be. Uh, different from the House of Representatives and intended to be less representative than the House. Uh, but it's gotten to epidemic proportions. I mean, if, if current trends can continue, uh, then by 2030, 30% of the population is going to control 70 seats in the Senate. Uh, and and the Wait, now that that's because people are moving to the city and populations are getting more concentrated. Okay. Populations are getting more concentrated in, in these states. And the, the Senate, the, whether you have 25 million people or 600,000 people like Wyoming or less than 600,000, you still get two senators. And so rural interests are vastly overrepresented in the, in the U.S. Senate. And it's interesting because people will say, oh, well, D.C. is just a city. You know, it's not, you know, how could it be a state? And the anti-urban bias is just, it's so remarkable. It's like, well, city people shouldn't matter. City people shouldn't have the same rights as everybody else. Like, it's not a real state. You know, somebody said, well, there are no car dealerships in DC. So how can that be? Which is totally false, but a terrible criteria. Like, why is that the, the, the definition of a, of a state? Right? And you were saying before, which other states are smaller than DC? Yeah, Wyoming and Vermont. And we are actually on par with six other states, you know, Probably and oh, Alaska soon, mm -hmm. right? And, and, yeah. and it, it really begs the question, well, what does it mean to be a democracy, right? If 30% of the population can control 70% of the, of the nation's largest representative body, that's a real problem. And, and what happens is that over and over urban interests, the, the interests of these voters is, is stymied, is, is, is ignored uh, by the Senate. The, it, something's got to give, right? Something's going to explode if, if we don't have a, an, an outlet, a democratic, small d democratic outlet for, for, to, to represent our interests. Well, now yeah. Maine, is, Maine is a rural state and like Maine has in many cases resisted abolishing the electoral college because they believe in protecting their rights as a small rural state. So I want to just ask this one question, like, why should Maine people support this? Why should we be calling our senators and telling them this matters to me here in well, Maine? If I can piggyback on what Chris is saying, it's like, wait a minute, let's think this through over the long term. If we don't have the kind of small d possibilities for actually getting our voices heard, then people will take things into their own hands. And this is not a good thing for democracy. You know, you really need to be able to hear each other and come to some kind of compromises. That's, I know that's a bad word for a lot of people, but in reality, when you're trying to function as a full-term democracy where everybody's uh, voice is heard, then you need to hear each other and figure out what works best. And sometimes you'll win and sometimes you won't. But if you have enough sense that 
well, next time I'll be able to function this or we'll fix it a little differently, then we can function as a democracy. If we don't have that, like Chris said, it's not gonna be good. You wanna answer that question, Chris, why should Maine people care? You're from DC, but you live in Maine now. I mean, it boils down to, it's just the right thing to do, right? So Frederick Douglass, famous DC resident, uh, famously said, you know, there's not a man beneath the canopy of heaven who does not know that slavery is wrong for him, right? Everybody deep in their heart knew that slavery, they would not want to be slaves, right? That's why people are naturally abolitionists. That's how he believed. The same idea applies to voting rights. There's not a, an American here who would want this situation for him or herself, who would want to be denied the right to vote. And, and I'd love to just take a minute to, to, to tell the story of my mother. So my mom was an amazing American. She uh, was born and raised in DC, you know, went to, to school there, uh, wound up uh, marrying a foreign service officer, served abroad, served her country in the Department of Defense with the CIA. She was a physician. She worked in the US Embassy in Madrid. When we came back home to, to DC, she worked in a drug clinic during the 1980s, at the height of the crack epidemic. She finished her career 15 years at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, serving veterans, people who had served our country. She served this country. She paid her taxes. She did everything that any American uh, could be expected to do. She's the most patriotic person you could imagine. She could never vote for representatives in the National Congress. She never voted for a senator or for a representative. She died last fall. She had never voted for someone to represent her in the Congress of our country. That is just wrong. And Every American knows that in his or her heart. We're kind of running out of time this afternoon. I wish we could go another hour. There's so much to talk about, but I want to give each of you a few minutes to make a parting um, statement and make your impassioned plea to our listeners for the case you want to make. Go ahead and take a couple. Well, let me just say that there are a few things that people are often misunderstand about DC. And if if people get that, um, then I think it'll be helpful. You know, one is that there are really are real people. I mean, we have parks, we have churches, we have um, we have flowers, we have garden, we have garden clubs. Um, so, it's, if you think about what your your uh, neighborhood looks like, that's us too. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, it's like we pay taxes. We pay taxes and we don't have a vote in how those taxes are used uh, or even how much we have to pay. So that is a really important, it's still taxation without representation and that's not okay. And the third thing is that a lot of people just think, well, why does it bother, you know, me? No, because I'm I'm busy, you know. So so it's like if you can actually talk to your friends and neighbors and say, you know, I don't like this DC statehood, um, not having a not being a state. Um, it, you know, I mean, when you when you Mainers send somebody to to the hill, they become in charge of me. Is that is that American? You know, 
and I can't vote for them. So those are the kinds of things that I hope people will think and remember and really support those who are supporting DC statehood. Thanks, Anne. Uh, turn it over to you, Chris. Take a couple minutes, summarize your case for us. Why should Mainers care about this? Why should Mainers care about anything beyond their borders? You know, what, but we do, right? All around my neighborhood, you drive around Maine, you see flags of Ukraine. You know, the Ukrainian flag is everywhere. Why? What does that have to do with us? Because it has to do with freedom, right? It has to do with human rights and standing up uh, against tyranny. And, and that stirs the souls of Americans, right? They, you know, no matter where we are. And so this is the same kind of battle. It's not a war. We're not, there's no invading army, but this is still a fundamental issue of freedom and democracy. And Mainers care about that. We care deeply about that. Po politics is very personal. We know our representatives. We know our, our, our school board members and we know everybody. And, and we care about politics, we care about democracy and we should care about 700,000 plus American citizens who have all the responsibilities, all the obligations of citizenship, but do not have the rights. This is tyranny. It's the tyranny that, that drove the, the patriots in 1776. No taxation without representation. It's just wrong. Every American knows that that's wrong. And I, I just want to throw in a little doorknob. We had one um, listener question. Why doesn't Puerto Rico pay federal income tax? Why is that different? Well, this is the only, this is in fact the only territory, D.C., that pays federal income taxes. Everybody actually pays FICA, you know, into Social Security. Puerto Ricans do, yeah. Puerto Ricans do, but not federal income taxes. And none of the other territories pay federal income taxes. It's just D.C. So. Thank you both so much. We are now out of time. Uh, I want to thank our guests one more time this afternoon, Ann Anderson, Chair of the League of Women Voters, D.C. Full Rights Committee, and a resident of D.C., and Chris Myers-Ash, Visiting Instructor of History at Colby College, co-author of the book Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital from D.C., now living in Maine. Great conversation. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. We're streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League website is LWVME.org. For more information about this topic, to read the, um, some material provided by our two guests on the topic to learn more about other shows in our series. You can also subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.